as we come to Mark's account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, this is what I would have us walk away with today. Jesus faced lifelong testing by Satan to ensure his people's deliverance from Satan's grip for eternity. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is that faithful, great high priest who was tempted and tested like we are, yet without sin. And he identifies with us. And not only does he identify with us, but he has the grace and help that we so desperately need as his people. And Father, I pray that today as we look through this passage that we would see your word through the eyes of Mark, what you inspired Mark to write, and that Jesus, though it depicts his humiliation for us, may in our hearts and minds he be exalted as our Savior. We pray this in his name, amen. So turn with me to the first chapter of Mark as we continue our study together. We'll be looking at verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Renee and I, at least I often think about Renee and mine's trip to Israel that we took back back in the 90s, and one of the aspects of that trip I always remember is our time in the Judean wilderness, love the spring of En Gedi, and then looking beyond the spring of En Gedi up the hills to the Judean wilderness there near the Dead Sea. And two aspects of the wilderness come to mind. Uh, one aspect had to do with, with, with the Bedouins, the nomads who still live in the Judean wilderness in their tents. However, the Bedouins don't live like their ancestors. I just remember several of these Bedouin encampments. I saw their Subarus out the front door of their tent. And I don't know why they had a TV antenna, except that they had TVs as well. The second aspect, given the modern Bedouin lifestyle, <laughs> taking that aside, the other aspect, though, in many parts of the Judean wilderness is just how desolate, how barren, how rugged, how dangerous, how inhospitable that wilderness really is. And it was even more so in Jesus' day. Yet this harsh landscape of the wilderness, given that, we need to understand that the wilderness motif is central to our understanding of Mark. The accounts of Jesus' baptism and the temptation took place in the wilderness. Jesus uh, came out to John, as we read in verse 9, because John had appeared in the wilderness baptizing in the Jordan River. Look at verses 4 through 5. And so our Lord comes out. He voluntarily comes to the wilderness, submits to John's baptism as the ideal Israelite. As we considered last week, we 
learn all kinds of things about the fact that Jesus' vocation as the Messiah has been inaugurated. He is identifying with the people of Israel so that he would be their representative, ultimately their representative on the cross. He humbled himself. He submitted himself to John's baptism. And his servant vocation was inaugurated there in the wilderness. And then after his baptism, he was driven further into the wilderness. This is what Mark would have us see. We don't know exactly where Jesus' baptism took place, except it was in the, the Jordan River somewhere in the wilderness. But the temptation is Jesus goes further into the wilderness. That's the sense of Mark. And what's interesting in verse 12, the declaration You are my beloved son, said God the Father, as his voice echoes from the heavenly throne room. That wonderful affirmation and declaration did not exempt the Lord Jesus Christ for submitting himself to further humiliation. And that's, this is what John wants us to, or Mark wants us to see as Jesus continues as the ideal Israelite, the faithful Israelite. For this reason, Mark is unlike Matthew and Luke. We would have read 11 verses had we been studying Mark's account. And if we were looking at Luke's account of the temptation, we, we would have read 13 verses. We read two fairly short verses. Mark is incredibly brief. Mark does not list the specifics of the three temptations that Matthew and Luke spend a number of verses detailing for us. Mark, surprisingly, does not even indicate specifically that Jesus was victorious. You may think, what in the world is Mark doing? Again, Mark is very brief. In two verses, what Mark is doing, certainly not contradicting what Matthew and Luke say in their accounts, not at all. He's coming from the perspective of wanting us to see the absolute necessity of Jesus humbling himself and submitting to Satan's temptations, really Satan's testing of Jesus beyond just the three ways that Matthew and Luke detail for us. And there's something else that Mark wants us to see is that this trial or testing by Satan did not end in Mark 13. Another reason Mark's is so brief is that he wants us to come away by realizing that this temptation and testing is going to last for the entirety of Jesus's ministry on earth. He was tried, he was tempted, he was tested all the way to the cross for you and me. 
we might say then that the entire narrative of Mark, the entire unfolding story of, of Jesus' ministry takes place in the wilderness. And our goal today is quite simple. It's looking at three verbs that we find in these three verses. The first one is drove. The second one is tempted. And the third one is ministering. First, the Spirit drove Jesus out into the wilderness, verse 12. Jesus was already in the wilderness. He was being baptized. He went out to John, who was baptizing in the wilderness. And so Jesus goes further into the wilderness after the baptism. We recall from last week the, the cosm cosmically significant event of the heavens opening up at the baptism and immediately the text says when Jesus came up out of the water that that the heavens opened up that immediately denoting something significant happening the, the heavens tore apart literally and the Holy Spirit came down like a dove to anoint anoint Jesus for his servant vocation and then as we've already mentioned this this glorious proclamation of the Father over his Son. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We see this in verses 10 through 11. And this cosmically significant event of Jesus' baptism gives way to another cosmically significant event. Mark uses immediately again in verse 12 to emphasize the significance of what is about to happen. And both, interestingly, both Matthew and Luke record that Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. But in Mark's account, that same Spirit did not even allow a moment for the Son to even appreciate <laughs> what his Father declared, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased because immediately the Spirit didn't lead Jesus, Mark says, he drove Jesus out into the wilderness, further into the wilderness, deeper into the wilderness, verse 12. Around 1966, when I was in second or third grade, my, my dad's job transferred him to uh, New York City. And so we, my parents and myself, we moved uh, from what really was the country to New York City, or actually Mount Vernon, New York, a suburb of the city. And we lived in a, in a house that had apartments. We lived on the second floor. The landlord's lived on the first uh, floor and one day uh, and our landlords had a large family and one day I was out back and again I was in second or third grade and all of a sudden the back door the first floor flew open and boys just started piling out the door and I heard all of this racket and then I saw why they were literally flying out the back door is because mama who had had enough of her boys broom in hand forcefully <laughs> drove them out 
of the house. And so I always respected that mom. I, uh, she carried a big stick. When I think of drove out, that's what I think of. When I think of drove out, I think of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 13. The triumphal entry had taken place, and he entered the temple. This is what we read. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. That, that's what I think of when I think of driving something out. I think of the mother in New York and Jesus, not to be equated. By recording that, that the Spirit drove Jesus out was Mark indicating that somehow the second person of the Trinity, the 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 only begotten Son of God, whom the Father said in you, I'm well pleased, Son, was somehow reluctant to go. Did he need to be broom in hand, Holy Spirit, whacked to go deeper into the wilderness? While this verb does denote a forceful action, no doubt, it also may imply an inward, someone being inwardly compelled to do something. We've all experienced that, haven't we? That there's such a strong, compelling force in our souls. We've just got to do it. Hopefully, we just got to do the right thing. But Jesus submitting to Satan's temptation and the Holy Spirit driving him deeper in the wilderness, I want to suggest to you, actually refers to the divine necessity of Jesus submitting himself to Satan's temptation to drive out points of the fact this had to happen. The Holy Spirit drove him out, but guess what? Have you ever been driven to do something? I have. That's one of my, that's one of my greatest assets, one of my greatest problems. But have you ever been driven to do something? And here Jesus, yeah, the Holy Spirit drove him, but Jesus was driven to go deeper into the wilderness because it was of divine necessity that he spent a lifetime of ministry being tempted and tested as the second Adam, the last Adam by Satan. Jesus voluntarily humbled himself by submitting to Satan's temptation as the ideal Israelite. It was necessary to fulfill his messianic work. And that word drove, properly understood, is of great encouragement to you and me. And this is how. Nothing would hinder Jesus fulfilling his mission. And that included going deeper into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by Satan. Doesn't that encourage you? That Jesus is resolute in doing everything necessary to identify with us and represent us for our salvation. Nothing, not even Satan, 
especially not even Satan, could hinder him, could stop him, could discourage him. Now, when we get to Matthew and Luke's account, we see very clearly that's what Satan was trying to do. We think of the three temptations. What was the point of all that? So that Jesus would say, you know what, Satan? I think you're right. I don't think I need to suffer. And in fact, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to do what you say. You, you, if I follow you, my life will be so much easier. I won't have to suffer. Satan was trying to get him to set aside his messianic mission. So not even Satan could cause Jesus to falter. And that gives us great assurance of the saving work of Jesus for our eternal destiny. It's an encouragement. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10, but we see him for a little while, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, where it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things existed in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their, of their salvation perfect through suffering. The one who brought everything into being humbled himself to suffering for you and for me. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness and Jesus was driven to the wilderness, divine necessity. Secondly, Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. For all you sports fans, and if I mess this up, just forgive me. I always mess up sports illustrations, but here we go. One of the greatest home court advantages in sports history, in my opinion, and in the opinion of others, especially those who are uh, Boston sports fans, it is the 1980s TD Garden, that is the old Boston Garden, home of the Boston Celtics. Renee and I were able to actually go to a game back in the, the mid-80s and in, in the heyday of the Celtics and the Lakers, a competition with one another. We saw Larry Bird and Magic Johnson duel on, on the court. It was fantastic. I mean, the crowd was nuts, and so part of that home court advantage is just the maybe the in, insanity of the, of the Boston Celtics crowd. It gets pretty, ram, or at least in the day, it got pretty rambunctious in, in the garden. But another aspect of the home court advantage is the flooring itself. The, the parquet flooring of the old Boston garden was the only floor in the entire NBA at the time that was made out of red oak and not maple. Red oaks of softer wood. That caused the ball to bounce in a different manner than on the normal maple court. But there was another thing that made that court really a nightmare for visiting teams is that parquet flooring, which was often put over ice because the Boston Bruins had just played the night before, had all kinds of secret dead spots in it that apparently only the Celtics knew where they were and the visiting teams did it. A home court advantage... A decidedly home court advantage is very important. And it is essential to understand that, that Mark takes the wilderness as Satan's home court. 
his domain. In Matthew's and Luke's accounts, the temptation is by the devil, the accuser. It's that word diabolos used. But in Mark's account, the term is Satan, the adversary, and that's for purpose. This unique feature of Mark is showing that the wilderness is the place. Deep in the wilderness is the place. Any place in the wilderness is the place where this cosmic conflict is going to take place. Jesus clashing with the chief adversary of God and God's people, Satan. Another unique feature of Mark, not found in Matthew and Luke, is the reference of our Lord being with many animals, and a specific, many wild animals. Some commentators, I think, wrongly associate Mark's reference to animals with, with being symbolic of the tranquil paradise that will come after Jesus defeats Satan. Now, Jesus will defeat Satan, and there will be tranquility come. The lion will lay down with the lamb, but I don't think that's what Mark is talking about here. He says they're, they're not formerly wild animals. They're not wild animals now that are now pets. No, they're wild animals. They're dangerous. They like to eat things like people. What he's doing in actuality is showing that Jesus is being driven deep into the wilderness. He is being driven deep into enemy territory. He is being driven into the barren of barren, the hostile of the hostile, the dangerous of the dangerous, the inhospitable of the inhospitable. That's where he is being driven. And now there are wild animals to contend with. And you may think, well, what are wild animals in the Judean Wilderness, yes, Dr. Hendrickson wrote the Jordan Valley and adjacent wilderness have been known as a haunt for hyenas, jackals, panthers, and even lions. Just look at the Old Testament reference to lions. Mark's point is to emphasize not only is the wilderness barren and inhabitable by humans and a place that the Old Testament associates with the curse, not blessing, It's also a dangerous place. They're wild animals. It is a place that represents Satan's domain, his home court. And each of the three synoptic gospels specify a fixed time that Jesus is in the wilderness. Forty days. Of course, this 40 days recalls a number of events in Israel's history. One being in Exodus 24, 18, Moses was on the mountain in the cloud for 40 days as the covenant was being given. Another is Elisha who traveled for 40 days to the very same mountain, Mount Horeb, to meet with God. And then the, and that's in 1 Kings 19. And then the text that, that, that uh, Carl read out of Deuteronomy chapter 8, I believe is also what might be part of Mark's usage of 40 days, and that is the 40 days of, or 40 years rather, of Israel in their wilderness wanderings, where they, Moses says in Deuteronomy 8, they were tested, and, and God wanted Israel to remember that they were tested. And of course, they failed the test, didn't they, that first generation? The good news is the 40 years of wilderness wanderings terminate 
on the bank of the Jordan. Isn't that interesting? This whole event, Mark, begins at the Jordan River with the baptism, now goes deeper in the wilderness. God's people were brought out of the wilderness after 40 years of wilderness wanderings, first generation having died off, now the new generation at the bank of the Jordan River, ready to cross in and take possession of the promised land. 40 days, 40 years. Significant. Well, how are we to understand Mark's use of this fixed period of time? Matthew and Luke seem to have an end for the fixed period of time. After 40 days, these three temptations take place and been there, done that, and then Jesus is on to begin his ministry. And that's true, and there's significance in that. That is Mark and Luke's perspective, and that's helpful, that's important. Mark, uh, Mark is not contradicting that at all. He's just simply giving a different perspective. He is showing us something in addition to what Matthew and Luke show us. And what Mark is showing us, I believe, is the 40 days is symbolic representing Jesus' whole lifetime in ministry. Notice what Mark says, that Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted. That's all he says. No end, just 40 days. Being tempted the whole time. Again, I believe, pointing to the fact that throughout Jesus' whole ministry, he will clash with Satan. Dr. Lane writes this, the 40 days do not describe a period whose significance is exhausted, exhausted once Jesus begins his public ministry, but sound the dominant note of his entire ministry, this cosmic clash with Satan. The first Adam in the garden, Genesis 1 through 3, failed the probationary test. That's how theologians think of that. Adam did not resist Satan's temptation. And Adam and his posterity now became sinners. Now Mark sets the stage for the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15.45. The Lord Jesus, being deep in the wilderness, Satan's territory, humbling himself by submitting to all the testing that Satan would have for him and the last Adam the second Adam the Lord Jesus was faithful faithful to God's covenant faithful to fulfilling his calling he would not be detoured and we know the end Genesis 3:15 tells us the end that Satan will be destroyed and the offspring of the woman will prevail but Mark wants us to see that that victory includes Jesus being tempted his entire ministry life here on earth. His mission is in the context of the wilderness temptation. With brevity and clarity, Mark shouts, (laughs) shouts at us that Jesus is absolutely qualified as the ser- in his servant vocation. I hope you hear it loud and clear. He suffered a barrage of the most fierce attacks of testing 
that anyone will ever suffer, can't possibly suffer, and yet his devotion to the Father and his servant vocation to deliver God's people, he succeeded and he prevailed. Jesus' faithfulness in being that faithful great high priest that humbled himself even to Satan's temptation for us is of great help and encouragement to us. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verses 15 through 16, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Also, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Because of Jesus' faithfulness under temptation, we have all that we need to be faithful in our wilderness journey, facing Satan's testing and temptation. May, you, may we readily flee to him who has endured the ultimate testing for us that we would endure. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. Jesus was driven to humble himself in the wilderness to be tested by Satan. And thirdly, angels were ministering to him Maybe you've said this, I, I, I have, when I am uh, perhaps broken down on the side of the road and someone stops to help me, I'm in need and someone comes to help me, to minister to me, maybe like me you've said, you're an angel. Well, the text tells us, and this is a unique, a, a unique feature of Mark, that there, were, there was divine provision for Jesus as he was driven deeper into the wilderness. His physical and all of his needs were addressed by angels. As forsaken as the wilderness was, and this is really the point, I think, of what Mark wants us to see here, as forsaken as that place was, it was not a place that prevented Jesus having communion with his heavenly Father. The beloved Son was still loved by the Father, and the love of the Father dispatched these ministering angels to care for him as he humbled himself and, and suffered Satan's attack there in the wilderness and throughout his ministry. And it's interesting to me, and I don't want to make too much of this, but it is A point, at least that I make in my own mind, is that there's only one place where Jesus in his earthly ministry was forsaken by the Father. And it wasn't in the wilderness. It was on the cross. Father, why have you forsaken me? That he suffered 
abandonment on the cross so that we would never experience being forsaken by the Father. He was sinless. He was on that cross not for himself, but for his people. He suffered the wrath of God, including being forsaken by the Father, who at the beginning of his earthly ministry said, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And at the end of his earthly ministry, Jesus says, Father, why have you forsaken me for us? Mark's account and unique perspective on Jesus' cosmic conflict with Satan deep in the wilderness primarily teaches about the necessity of the Lord Jesus humbling himself, submitting himself to be tested and tempted by Satan for the purposes of redeeming us. And we know that this trial of testing and tempting will continue all the way to the cross and even on the cross. But then we know of the the end of the story of the glorious resurrection and victory over the grave, victory over death, victory over Satan. And so our tendency is to go there, which is a good place to go. But Mark would have us see these things through his lens. And to sit for a while with the life of Jesus who suffered so for our salvation. I mean, doesn't it it make salvation just a bit sweeter to know what Jesus went through that we would never go through it? In a secondary sense, I would like to say that Mark's account reminds us We will face temptation not at the beginning of our life, not only a certain period of our life, and not at the end of our life, but the whole (laughs) of our life. And so in a secondary sense, in, in, in a way of implication application, we see Jesus blazing the trail for us, the life of suffering. And you may not want to hear that. Some of you are thinking, hey, wait a minute. When I signed up for Jesus, I signed up for the good life. And you know why you have signed up for the good life? An unbelievable life. But it's not a life without suffering. It's not a life without struggling with temptation. Jesus himself will say in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, that we'll get to at some point. He says, everybody that follows me, this is what you need to do. Take up your cross (laughs) and follow me. He didn't say take up my cross. We can't take up Jesus' cross. He said take up your own cross. In other words, self-denial in following Jesus. Knowing that there's going to be suffering in following Jesus. Knowing that if we're following Jesus, some of that, that suffering is going to include temptation and testing. We're going to be tempted by our own sinful desires, but there's also that external temptation that that Satan brings. 
In fact, I would say, what I understand, he's just saying here in Mark chapter 8, take up your cross and follow me. It's going to be a life of self-denial and suffering is that it's not if we face temptation, it's when. I mean, it's guaranteed. Haven't you already faced temptation today? The wilderness is a very barren, rugged, dangerous, hostile, inhospitable place. It was so in Jesus' day and it's so in our day today. But praise God that we have the one who has journeyed through the wilderness faithfully for us. Martin reminds us Jesus has blazed that trail right through the heart of Satan's home court. Jesus prevailed as the ideal Israelite every step of the way. Mark encourages us that, yeah, the first Adam really made a mess of things, but the second Adam gloriously was faithful for you and for me. And because of this faithfulness in the wilderness, we are not abandoned as we journey following him. Even in the greatest of testing, even in the deepest part of whatever our wilderness might be, If we are his true disciples, A, we will not be forsaken, ministering angels. (laughs) And secondly, well, meaning God is going to provide for us. And then, then secondly, Jesus has already been there. And he has faithfully obeyed and resisted the temptation for us. And we are called to flee to him for all the grace that we need when we are tempted. We not only have a great high priest who, who knows what it, our human condition, what it's like to be tempted. And one who is ready to, to pour out all the mercy and grace that we need when we are tempted as we call out to him in prayer. But in union with him, union with him in saving faith, even in the deepest part of the wilderness, whatever that might be for you and me, we are more than conquerors. And I want to end with this incredible verse from the end of Romans 8 that I believe speaks to this, that because of Jesus' faithfulness in the wilderness, Because of his victory on the cross and being raised from the dead, he has secured for us redemption. And nothing can take that away from us. Nothing could hinder Jesus going deeper in the wilderness for our salvation. And nothing can separate us from the saving work and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Now, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus faced lifelong testing by Satan to ensure his people's deliverance from Satan's grip for eternity. Let us pray. Father, encourage our hearts today. Enable us to see that the greatest testing that feels like it may overcome us, that we, we do have a shelter. And that shelter is the one who journeyed through the deepest part of the wilderness for us. The one who is faithful. The one who resisted. The one who obeyed. The one who secured deliverance for God's people. Draw us to him, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.